It is good to see all of you this morning. Let me make a couple of quick announcements. First, March 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. That's a Tuesday night through a Friday night. The conference in Gladeville, the Embracing the Truth conference will be happening. I'll have the good pleasure of teaching with Roger Skeppel. I'll be doing the daytime teaching. He'll be doing the nighttime teaching, and we are teaching on the doctrines of grace this year. Since that is something that Elder Ward years and years ago established for uh, the Sovereign Grace Conference, that every few years there's teaching on the doctrines of grace, that is what the Embracing the Truth Conference has decided to do again this year. So make your plans accordingly. I hope to see you all over there. That week there won't be any Wednesday night meeting here at GCA. If you want to go to church that Wednesday, go to Gladeville which isn't that far away from here, and they always treat us very, very good. And then, right on the heels of that, almost shockingly, a homecoming's almost upon us. And so we are making plans at this moment, trying to arrange what's going to happen. So any of you that would like to contribute to homecoming with your singing ability or your musical talents or Anything else you'd like to do? Miming is good. Any of you that have a miming ability? Homecoming is March 31st and April 1st this year. That is a Saturday, Sunday. We will be using the same facility that we've used the last couple of years, right up around the corner. And we'll have dinner Saturday night after a Saturday afternoon service. And then we'll have a Sunday morning communion service. And then a potluck after that. 
and so that's always a real good weekend. There are plenty of people making their plans to come into town for that weekend to share our Resurrection Sunday and communion service with us. So before we know it, we're just going to blink, and suddenly that's all going to be upon us. Make your plans accordingly. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Potentially, and please remember that I used the word potentially, but potentially this could be one of the shorter sermons that I have ever preached. Again, remember the word potentially. Don't roll your eyes at me. Because we've really only got chapter 5 of 1 Peter, and last week we looked at the first couple of verses, and then the rest of the chapter is Peter saying kind of large summary statements. And then next week we will get into 2 Peter. Therefore, says chapter 5, verse 1, therefore which means that he's basing that statement on everything he has said prior to that. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 17, he said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, the whole last chapter is going to kind of be an expansion of that same idea. Let those who suffer, because he's going to go back to mentioning suffering, Let those who suffer according to the will of God, because he's going to say that these things are all coming to us based on God's determination, who he's going to refer to as the God of all grace, whose grace is best demonstrated when we're going through our difficulties and our sufferings. And then let us entrust ourselves to that God of all grace, and the way that we entrust ourselves to him is by doing what is right. And that's kind of the theme of the whole of chapter 5, so that he can start again with, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight or overseeing them, be the overseer, same idea as shepherd, same idea as poimain, take care of the flock, look after the flock, remembering that the flock, after all, do not belong to you. They are not your sheep. They belong to the great shepherd. You're just exercising an oversight. You're just watching over them, not under compulsion, But voluntarily, notice again this idea of voluntary submission, because it's going to come up yet again, as if it hasn't come up enough already in 1 Peter. It's going to come up again in chapter 5. As he's making his summary statements, he's going to say, all of you, just submit to each other, so that there is this sense of peace within the church, that there isn't backbiting and fighting and feuding and gossiping, just exercise this kind of willing submission 
to one another. And even the shepherds of the flock should exercise their oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, last week I made a comment that I think is inevitable. Any of us these days when we read, not for sordid gain, just kind of can't help but think of people we know who have been in the ministry for their own aggrandizement, for their own ego, and ultimately for their own sordid gain. I simply don't know anybody who (laughs) preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ who actually deserves a jet plane or who actually needs a multi-million dollar mansion. I think we can say, okay, that is sordid gain. If you're living in a mansion, flying in a plane, if you're spending that kind of money on yourself and there are people in your congregation who are barely getting by, how is that appropriate Christian equity? How is that empathy for those who are less well off than you are? So certainly it's never the job of an elder, of an overseer, to make more of himself than the rest of the congregation. One of the concepts that I heard years and years ago that I actually like is that any church, whether it's a wealthy church or whether it's an impoverished church, that any church ought to figure out what the average mean economy is of the congregation. Just kind of get an average of what everybody in the congregation lives on and that that should be the goal for giving your pastor something to live on. Since we know that we should support the gospel, we should support it in the means or in a way where the pastor is then equal to the congregation itself. And I like that idea because then the pastor doesn't become as poor as a church mouse, to use a phrase that's sort of obvious. I heard a phrase years ago, a woman in a church who said, Dear Lord, if you just keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> really, the congregation ought to support the gospel. The Bible certainly says that, that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But those who preach the gospel should not do so much better than the congregation that they are existing on the back of the congregation that's being, for lack of a better word, readily shorn, and that all the wool in the place from all the sheep is all going to the shepherd. That's just not the way it should work. If you have a very large, very wealthy congregation, I say the same thing. Take the average, figure out what that is. That's what the pastor should make. It's not biblical. I think it's a good rule because it'll keep the pastor again from ever lording it over the congregation or ever becoming wealthier than the congregation. He shouldn't be poorer than the congregation, barely getting by, barely subsisting, but he certainly shouldn't become rich on the back of the congregation. So shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. I do think, by the way, that those two phrases are a contrast. That you're not doing it for sordid gain, but you're doing it voluntarily according to the will of God. 
if God has given you the gift, if God has given you an ability to look after a flock, to teach the word, if you are, as Paul says, apt to teach, if you do have the qualifications to be a deacon or an elder in the church, if you are responsible for the people that God has put under your oversight, then it is really important that you shepherd them, that you teach them according to the will of God and not just so that you're making money. This job that we have, this calling that we have, is a calling directly from God. And so we should willingly submit ourselves to the call of God, to the work of the ministry, not so that we can get rich, but because we want to be pleasing to the one who saved us, because we want to be obedient to the one who gave us the commission. So that's the reason that we should exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Again, this is another contrast that Peter has laid out. The contrast is, don't lord it over. In other words, don't act like the congregation is yours either to fleece or to control. I knew a pastor years ago. I remember having this conversation with him. I said, when you're standing in the pulpit and you have your Bible open, as long as you're saying what the Bible says, at that moment, you're right. Because you're saying what the Bible says, and the Bible is right. So at that moment, you're right. But then he carried that assumption of rightness out into his daily life, and he told people how to cut their grass. He told people what job they should work. He several times interfered in marriages and told people who they should or shouldn't marry. And that's the point at which you're not right. That's the point at which the assumption of rightness that you have in the pulpit has not carried out into your everyday life. You're just another human being. So you've got to remember that you're not to lord it over the flock. You're not to control the flock. You're supposed to lead the flock. You're supposed to be an example to the flock. Be somebody that they can respect. Be somebody that they can say proudly, well, that's the pastor of the church I attend. That's the man of God that I listen to teach the word of God. And have respect about it. And that means when you leave the pulpit and you go into your everyday life, you have to continue to be that respectable guy. Because I have known preachers in the past. I've known a lot of preachers in my life. And I've known preachers in the past for just about every example you can name. Name an example. I've known a guy like that. But, but I knew a guy who was fine in the pulpit. Open Bible preaching, fine. Get him away from the pulpit. He was a vulgar man. And then I found out, not to go too far into this particular story, but then I found out that he had also been visiting places of ill repute. And I thought, there's no way that man should stand in the pulpit or lead anybody. He's not being 
an example. Peter says that you don't lord it over those that are, look at the word, that are allotted to your charge is the NASB translation of it. In the Greek, it means they don't belong to you. They've been lent to you for the purpose of you watching after them. Micah and April were recently given a cat that actually belonged to Leon's roommate. He's not Alex anymore. He's Leon's roommate. (laughs) And so Micah and April took care of it. I'm only using this example to say they knew the whole time that they were feeding him and taking care of him and petting on him and being friendly. They, They knew the whole time, not my cat. It's it's not, it's Alex's cat. So the same example applies here. Take care of the sheep. They have been allotted to your charge, but they're not yours. They belong to Jesus. They belong to the all omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, and you're just you. So what makes you think that you have the authority or the power to lord it over them or take control of them or use them for your benefit. Use and abuse them to make yourself more aggrandized. Peter says, don't do that. Instead, prove to be an example. Prove to be the kind of person that they can say, well, I can follow a man like that. And if you do that, verse 4, and... When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Again, I think Peter's setting up a little contrast here. When you're on the planet and you've got a congregation, large congregation, small congregation, you've got a group of people who belong to the Lord. They're looking to you to do the teaching. It's very easy to get caught up in your own egocentricity. It's easy to start thinking, I'm the important person here. It's easy for you to start thinking, I need something back. I need some reward. I'm going to start making sure that I get rich or powerful or politically influential because of these people that are following me. It's easy for the human ego to start thinking that way. Peter says here, well, there is a reward to be had. It's just that you don't get your reward here and now. But when Christ, when the chief shepherd appears, if you have taken care of his sheep well, and you turn his sheep back over to him, you get rewarded for job well done. So there is a reward. It's just not a human, fleshly, earthly reward. Because, as he said from the beginning, these are God's sheep. This is God's enterprise. It's God who gave you the gift. It's God's word that you're teaching. And if you do it faithfully, then you're going to get a reward from God. This is all God's enterprise. That's the important part. And I know for certain... I've said this for as long as I've been here, and I think Jeff will agree that I've said this for as long as I've been here. If you hear tomorrow that Jim got hit by a truck and Jim's not going to be here anymore, next Sunday, show up here because the same God who gave me whatever gift I've got, and I do think I've identified my gift. I have the gift to simplify the complicated and complicate the simple. That's my gift. 
But if it's a gift that actually comes from God, the ability to teach his word, God is perfectly capable of giving that same gift to whoever stands here next Sunday after I'm hit by the truck. And you've seen it time and time again. You've seen men stand up here and preach the word of God. And when they've gotten done, you've thought, well, that was good. I learned something. That was good. Who knew he had that in him? We're very fortunate here at GCA that there's a handful of men who can stand right here next Sunday and you all will be fine. Why? Because it's God's enterprise and God does not collect his sheep and then not feed them. God does not collect his people as a body and then not bless them. As long as the word goes out, and as long as you're being adjured to be faithful to his word, you're going to be fine. And by the way, 10 minutes after I've been hit by the truck, I mean, if it actually takes me out, if I'm gone, if I'm done, I guarantee I'm going to be a whole lot happier than all of you meeting here next Sunday. <laughs> so just keep going. Keep meeting. Because this is God's enterprise and he'll supply. He'll feed the sheep. He'll take care of his own word. He'll take care of his own people. You just keep being faithful. Got it? Amen. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now he goes back to his idea of voluntary submission you younger men likewise be subject to your elders now again I did not coordinate with Kellen I did not call Kellen and tell him what particular passage he should read this morning for our Bible reading but he read Paul's words and they echo what Peter is saying here or Peter is echoing Paul but this is an important concept everybody be willingly submissive to one another, and you young men look toward the elders, look toward the mature men. They've just had more time in the faith. I tell people regularly, it's not my age, it's the mileage. <laughs> and over the years and all the places I've been and the things I've been through and the years that I've had in the Word, I've just simply collected more experience, just more stuff. I just know stuff. Just simply by being there. I know stuff that younger men just simply can't know. Look, when I was 20, maybe 21, I can tell you most assuredly, I knew everything. Me too. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Pretty much every male in the room will say, yeah, when I was 21, man, I had it. Then I got to 40. And I'd look back on myself as 21, and I'd think, what an idiot. <laughs> but now that I'm 40, now I've got some experience on me. Now I'm a grown-up. Now I know some stuff. Now I look back at me at 40, and I think, what an idiot. <laughs> so full of yourself and so gung-ho. What were you thinking? If I live long enough, I'll look back on me today and think, you still didn't know anything the way you think you know stuff. 
But the simple reality is, the longer you've been alive, the more knowledge you've accumulated, the more experiences that you've had. And so young men ought to look to the older men with respect, which certainly doesn't happen in our society generally, because it's such a youth-oriented society, that people look at us old guys and they think, well, he doesn't know anything. Look at him, he's old. He probably can't run a computer. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. That means actually pay attention to them, give them adequate respect, and submit yourself to them. You've heard the concept of a king and his subjects? Same idea here. Not that old men are kings, but the same idea that you would be subject to them. Give them appropriate respect, recognizing that they have lived long and have accumulated more knowledge than you could have in your 21 years. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Doesn't that sound like Paul? Paul in Philippians 2 saying, esteem every man is better than yourself. Look on the things of others and not only after your own things. This is thematic in the Bible. This is a solid New Testament concept that I think we can argue is a God concept. That God does not want you to think so highly of yourself that you start perceiving yourself as better than other people. Because that will result in you lording it over other people. That will result in you not being empathetic to other people, not helping other people, not helping those who are lesser, have less than you have. And so, again, throughout the Bible, you keep hearing this idea, all of you clothe yourselves with humility, Toward one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud. I've asked this question enough times, but I'm going to ask it again. Meanwhile, while I'm asking that question, somebody look up Proverbs 3:34. Would you do that, Tom? Somebody else, Michael, look up Psalm 55:22. And the rest of us are going to go over to Matthew 6 in just a moment. But I have said repeatedly over the years, the most repetitive sin that you find mentioned in the Bible is what? Pride. Pride. Constantly pride. Constantly ego. And God is opposed to the proud. And yet we just become so self-sufficient, so self-satisfied so egocentric that we're just convinced that we are really something and you're not that much. But me, I, I got it going on. I'm okay, you're so-so. I, me, I'm all together. And yet we're told repeatedly that God is opposed to the proud but will give grace to the humble. Now that's not the only place we find it. We find that all the way through the Bible. For instance, Tom is going to read for us Proverbs 3.34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. 
But to the humble, that's who he gives favor. The scornful, they're just going to receive scorn from God. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In the end, in the end, what is it you want from God? In the end, do you want God's judgment? No. In the end, do you want God to look at you and count every sin and punish you accordingly? Is that what you want? No. Do you want God to look at you and say, you know, I've been watching you. I've been paying attention to you. And it's about time you got your just desserts. No, not good. Doesn't work for me. I don't want that. What I want from God is grace. As I said, Peter's going to refer to him as the God of all grace. That's what I want from God. I wake up some nights fearing for where I've been and what I've done, how I think, how I am. I, more than any of you, am more conscious than any of you could be of my sin. I'm very, very conscious of my own depravity my own ill will, my own ego, I'm very conscious of that. What I want from God is grace. Grace. I've been saying it for 17 years. People I've never met walk up to me and say, hey, grace, 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 grace. Amen. Yeah. They've listened enough and heard me say grace, 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 grace. I want grace from God. That's what I want from God. How do I get it? He gives grace to the humble. So now humble yourself. Okay, so that's the equation. That God is opposed to the proud. And if you know that, then how should you be? Not proud. You should be anti-proud. You should be non-proud. You should be humble because he gives grace to the humble. So Peter says, what I just tried to elucidate. So humble yourselves, therefore. That's verse 6. If you know that he gives grace to the humble, be humble. Is that obvious enough? If God gives grace to the humble, you should actually be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Okay, so here's the equation. Again, you humble yourself. God gives you grace. He doesn't count your sins against you, and you get to live eternally in his glorious presence. Okay, that's a good exaltation. That, that's exalted. There's nobody on the planet that can do that for me. There's nobody anywhere on the planet that can exalt me the way God can exalt me. So whose favor do I really want? Man? No. I don't care what men think or what men expect of me or, or how many men say, oh, come on. You, you. When I was a kid, especially in high school, I took a certain amount of pride in the fact that I didn't swear. I never swore. Never. Because my dad never did. So no bad word ever came out of my mouth, which meant that all my friends in high school were determined to get Jim to swear. Oh, that sounds familiar. 
That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just determined to get Jim to say some bad word. Just determined to do something. Why was I the way I was? Well, because I was a good little Lutheran boy who understood that God was there and God was watching and I was trying to humble myself under the mighty hand of God in which I took pride because I'm so depraved that even the good things I've done, I end up taking pride in so my humility is erased. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Not humble yourself to raise yourself up. Not humble yourself to make yourself look good. Not humble yourself to gain your own reputation. Humble yourself because of the mighty hand of God. Who, by the way, can humble you better than you can humble you. And he wants humble. And he will humble you. And if you belong to him, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. So if you are his son, if he has received you, if he has chosen you, if you do belong to him, he is going to make sure that you end up exactly how he wants you and how he wants you is humble before him, dependent on him, a vessel of mercy and grace with nothing that you can brag about within yourself. So he's going to drive all of that ego out of you and bring you to a place of humility. And I'm here to tell you, when God decides to humble you, he knows how to humble you. He will take you down. Can I get a witness? So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the appropriate time, at the proper time. God is going to exalt you. But first, he's going to teach you dependence on him. Now, one of the ways that he teaches dependence is by taking you through troubles and trials and difficulties, suffering. Peter's going to talk about it in a moment. And how many times have we read Peter saying that if God decides that you need to suffer for a while, then you're going to suffer for a while. That's God's determination. So what do you do when you're going through the suffering? Do you shake your fist at him and yell at him? No, you humble yourself. What do you do when you're blessed highly and you've got plenty and you have a lot to eat and many clothes and a big car to drive? Well, then you humble yourself before God. In all circumstances, in every aspect of life, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. He'll lift you up in the appropriate time once you've learned the lesson casting oh I like this verse so much casting all your anxiety all your cares says the King James casting all of your worries upon him because he cares for you is there any better news than that all the worries of this life, all the cares of this life, all the worries about your finances and your sickness and your children and your just the stuff of life. How will I get through tomorrow? I do like the phrase. Most of you have probably heard it at some point. But I like the phrase, nobody ever had a nervous breakdown worrying about today. You've got today covered. You can see your way clear through today. You're okay. But man, tomorrow? What's going to happen tomorrow? Next week? 
A month from now? How am I going to get by? How am I going to pay my bills? Am I going to maintain my health? How am I going to endure through this lifetime? Well, Peter says, cast all your anxiety and all your cares on him because he cares for you. You want to see the demonstration of that? Mike is going to read Psalm 55, 22 for us. Stand up and read it for everybody. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Cast your care upon him. It goes all the way back to David. What are your concerns? What are your terrors? What are your problems in this lifetime? Cast it to him. Which just makes sense because first off, you can't change it. One of the big issues that we've seen this week is the school shooting that happened. And then Facebook lit up with people's opinions. A whole variety of opinions. Facebook lit up with gun control or it's people control or it's psychotic meds or it's taking lonely people in or it's everybody has an opinion about what caused this. Oh, the FBI missed it. They should have seen it. Everybody was looking for somebody to blame and everybody was so concerned. What are we going to do in the future? What are we going to do in the future? Well, at men's meeting this past Tuesday, someone asked, Do we have anything in place here at GCA if somebody comes through the door with a gun? Do we have any plan in place for how we're going to respond to that if it happens? Tom and I at the same time said, God's sovereign. God protects us. God's protected us for 17 years. God takes care of us. And you know what? Don't mean to be maudlin, but if somebody comes through that door and decides to take me out, I just decided me because I didn't want to put that on any of you. If he comes through the door and takes me out, well, then that was God's determination for how I graduate and go home. Oh, now I know how that happens. So God is absolutely sovereign, and I cast all my cares and my concerns on him. Yes, it's good to be smart. Yes, it's good to save up a little bit for a rainy day. Yes, it's good to take care of your health and eat right, get some exercise. These are all good things. But in the end, how long you live and how you live and what diseases or problems you get or what persecution you have to suffer in this lifetime is all in the hands of a sovereign God. And if that's true, then cast your worries, cast your cares on him because he does care for you. He is taking care of you. And then, end result, he's going to lift you up, exalt you, and bring you into his presence because he cares that much for you. I'm repeating a lot of popular phrases, but I like the phrase that says, God is too holy not to do that that is for our greatest good and his greatest glory. And so he's for us. He is establishing us. 
He is planting us. He is securing us. And he is taking us through this life in order that we will end up in the very place, in the very situation that he determined from the beginning we were going to get to. This is just the process of getting there. I said a few minutes ago we were going to look at Matthew 6. Keep your finger there and Peter turn to Matthew 6. We'll hear Jesus say it. Matthew 6, I'm going to start in verse 25. For this reason, Jesus speaking, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat and what you shall drink, nor for your body as what you shall put on. Isn't that the essence of all the worries of life? What am I going to eat tomorrow? What am I going to have to drink? Am I going to have clothes? Am I going to have shelter? Am I going to be okay in a week? He says, don't be anxious for any of that. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor do they gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. You get the picture? You see birds outside. I see flocks of birds in my yard. I don't know how they eat. I don't take care of them. Does anybody in this room take care of them? We're not taking care of them, and yet they're fine. God takes care of the birds. God feeds the baby lions. God takes care of the antelope on the hills. God takes care of the animals in the jungles the human beings can't even get to. God takes care of all of them. So Jesus says, if he would do that for animals, what about you? Because especially birds, birds are essentially worthless, he's going to say. Two of them are sold for a farthing. That's half a penny. That's nothing. But he feeds them. Isn't he going to feed you? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. In other words, they're not planning for tomorrow. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? That's brilliant psychology right there. Jesus' question is, which of you, by being afraid or being anxious or worrying about it or staying up or walking the floor can do anything about how tall you are or anything about how long you're going to live. No matter how much you worry about it, it changes nothing. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. In other words, they're not in there weaving some clothes to wear. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, did not clothe himself like one of those. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today, And tomorrow is thrown into the furnace? Will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? 
Do not be anxious then, saying, What will we eat, and what will we drink, and with what will we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father, get this, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. So just worry about today. He's got today. You don't even have a guarantee you're going to be here tomorrow. So don't be anxious. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be of a sober spirit. Back in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit and be on alert. Well, what does it mean to be sober? It means don't be drunk. Don't have an altered mind. Be clear in your thinking. Have a sharp, clear mind. And then be alert. Be awake. Be on guard. Why? Because Satan is prowling about on the planet. Prowling like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil. That word is diabolos. It's the same word that in Greek means to split, to divide. The one who is trying to divide you, the one who is trying to accuse you, the one who is trying to interrupt your relationship with God is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to trip. That's not what it says. Seeking someone to lightly confuse. No. He's looking for someone to devour. In other words, he knows full well that if he can get you away from the good graces of God, if he can get you away from your own humility, if he can get your mind back on yourself, and if he can get you worshiping evil things, if he can get you going back to a way of life that is godless, if he can accomplish those kind of things, you're going to end up under God's judgment, here, I'll give you an example. What did Satan ultimately do to Judas? He ultimately went and hung himself. Okay, that's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to upset your life. He's trying to devour you. And if it were not for the grace of God intervening on your behalf, if it wasn't for the power of God protecting you, if it wasn't for the hand of God, if he wasn't keeping you every moment of the day, then I guarantee you, you are easy prey for the devouring lion because he's been alive a lot longer than you are. He's much trickier than you. He is subtle. He knows how to appeal to your desires and your wants and your flesh. He knows how to do all that and will happily do it if it ends up in your destruction. And you're not strong enough. You're not big enough to protect yourself from that. You need the protection of God. So here's what he says. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Okay, okay, resist him. How? How do I resist him? Well, Peter doesn't leave you just dangling. He tells you how. Resist him firm in your faith. Stand on your faith. 
regardless of your circumstances. He's going to say it in just a moment. You could be suffering. You could be going through trials. That's when your faith is going to get the shakiest. Satan knows that. He knows that by using your circumstances, he can try to shake your faith, to undermine your faith in God. So stand firm in your faith instead, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, it's the same thing Paul said. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You're not being singled out. You're not the only one that's going through this trial. So therefore, stand firm in your faith. Now, this would be a good time to define faith again. Faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it more true than your circumstances. Whatever your circumstances of life, whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty, whatever pain, whatever struggles you're going through, you stand on God's word. You say, this is more true than what I'm going through. So stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Somebody look up Romans 8, 17 and 18, and we'll get to it in just a moment. Uh, Tom, if you would do that, and again, Micah, if you would look up Philippians 1, 29, we'll get to both of those in just a moment. Verse 10 says, And after you have suffered for a little while, here's that great phrase, the God of grace. The God of grace. He's still the God of grace. That's the point. It's definitional of who he is. He is the God of grace even while you're suffering. Blessed men, says David in the Psalms, blessed men go through valleys of weeping. Blessed men go through raka, go through the difficulties of this life, but they're still blessed men. It's still a God of grace who is taking you through the trials. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you, here's where you're headed, has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's what he's called you to. That's the grace part. After he has kept you humble, after he has made you dependent, after he has taken you through this life, he is then going to show his grace by bringing you to his own eternal glory, where angels sing about his holiness, where he's encased in a light that no man approaches, where he sits on a throne and rules the universe, you're going to be invited into that glory. Well, that's, that's a pretty good deal. I'd sign up for that. The God of all grace has called you to this eternal glory in Christ. And he himself, I like that Peter had to take the time to say, no, no, it's just him. It's not you. You're not doing any of this. He himself will perfect. That's the word for complete. He will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you I seek to be established I long to be established because I know me I go through my daily worries and my daily doubts and my daily please God give me something I can't wait for that day when I'm standing in glory standing before the throne going yes it's real 
<laughs> I'm here. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I love God. God actually loves me. Oh, and, and the grace is being poured out and I'm standing in glory. Oh, what a fine day this is. Yes. I can't wait. At that moment, everything that I ever believed, everything I ever put confidence in, Everything I ever suffered and endured through is all going to be worth it because I'm finally going to be established. But how am I going to be established and confirmed and completed and perfected? How's that going to happen? Not me. It's not me doing it. It's he himself will perfect and confirm and establish you. Doesn't that feel good? Everything about that just feels good. So Romans 8, 17 and 18 is going to say a very similar thing. I only bring it up because I want you to understand that suffering is part of this Christian plan of God for the purpose of making you humble, making you dependent on him. Suffering is just part of the package because we so quickly, when we're going through our trials, going through our suffering, we so quickly lose faith and start thinking, where is God in all this? I just want you to see that God is right smack dab in the middle of it. God is taking you through it for a purpose so that he can teach you the humility so that he doesn't have to resist your pride. So this is what it says. Tom. Uh, Starting with verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This concept's all the way through the Bible. Isn't that a wonderful verse? We are his. We belong to him if we suffer with him. Would have been nice if that part was left out. It'd be, yes, we're his. We belong to him as long as we have a really good, fulfilled life. And we're happy all the time and cake for me. But no, if we suffer with him, then we'll be glorified with him. Why? Because he's our example, and he suffered, and then he was glorified. So we're going to suffer first, and then be glorified. Which means, by the way, since that's the ultimate plan of God, every day that you get up and you feel okay, and things are fine, and the wolf is away from the door and you've got stuff to eat, and you've got clothes on your back, and the kids are healthy, thank God, because that's a good day. And he will bring about the tough days on purpose to take you to his ultimate glory. But when he gives you good days, be grateful. Don't start doing what most human beings do, which is saying, oh, things are going good. I must have done something right. What has two thumbs and is doing great? This guy. (laughs) No, we just start thinking, I did it. No, no, no. (laughs) God is perfectly capable of of making this life tremendously nonstop difficult. Haven't you known people who have nonstop difficulty and are common? way of thinking 
is to think, what did they do that God would take them through that? Except that the Bible seems to imply that it's the great love of God that's taking them through that. So, well, men, don't seek a physician. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We're not looking for a savior. God knows he has to take us through these struggles in order to get us to the place he wants us to be. Suffering is part of the package. Micah is going to read for us Philippians 1-2. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him. Okay, sit down. Unto you it's been granted to believe in Christ. That was it. That's a, that is it. See? Thank you, Micah, for reading. Because that's that whole verse. It's been granted to us to believe in God. Good news. I like. Oh, read the rest of it. Go ahead, read it again. <laughs> for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Oh. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> Yeah, it's been granted to you, granted to you, almost like a gift. God has bestowed this on you. Not only that you would believe in Christ, but that you would suffer with him. That you would become part of that experience of suffering in this flesh so that you can be exalted in the spirit. That's that's the Christian walk. There's no way around it. I was going to tell another personal story, but I'll let it go. But, oh, I'm going to tell you anyway. I got, a, I got a bum wing. I don't know what's happened. I, I, I've got an injury as close as I can tell looking on the Internet. It's a rotator cuff tendonitis. For the last five weeks or so, it's been killing me. It's been really difficult. It's been hard to sleep. It wakes me up during the night. I've been icing it. I've been heating. I've been, but I can't take synthetic anti-inflammatories. And so, you know, what, what am I going to do? I just live with it, and I keep thinking maybe it's going to get better. Maybe it's going to calm down. Maybe it's going to get better. I would like it because I pray for it all the time. I would like it if God just healed it. I would like it if it just got better. But I also know enough to humble myself under the almighty hand of God who has decided that at this point I'm going to walk around with a bum wing and that's just the way it is. I hope someday he sees fit to clear it up. Now, I used me as an example, but I guarantee right now every one of you can think about something that you just wish God would remove, that God would clear up, that God would heal, that God would make easier, that God would give you the money to accomplish this thing that you're struggling through, or that God would heal your relationship with whoever. That God, you, everybody's got something in their life that's making them struggle. But that's the plan. It's been granted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer. So Peter can say, Starting in chapter 5, verse 9, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So who has the power? Who gets all the glory? It's certainly not man, which is why Peter can then say, to him be dominion forever and ever. All the power, all the dominion, all the authority belongs to him. And the sooner we recognize that and humble ourselves under his almighty hand, well, then the happier we're going to be overall. If you continue to beat your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty, you're never going to be satisfied. But if you recognize that he knows what he's doing, you cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, because he has all the dominion and because he has all the power and all the authority, he can do with you whatever he wants to do with you. And what he wants to do with you is deliver you all the way to glory, all the way to his throne room. What he wants to do is be gracious to you. What he wants to do is teach you the important lessons that you have to learn while you're here on planet Earth so that he can bring to himself a people for his own glory. This is his master plan. You're just a part of it. But it all plays out the way he has determined it's going to play out. And you don't have the dominion, and you don't have the authority, and you don't have the power, and you can wring your hands, and you can worry, and you can be upset, and you can cry, and you can go through all that, and nothing's going to change. In the end, humble yourself before him. In the end, recognize his dominion and worship him anyway. Recognize his glory and that he deserves his right place in your thinking and in your faith and in your life and give him all the glory and the honor that is due him regardless of what you go through. Because what you go through is not uncommon. It's what your brothers in the faith have all gone through. So to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus... Our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Okay, now we know who Peter was writing through. Who was the amanuensis? Who was the secretary? Who was doing the writing? It was obviously Silvanus. Our faithful brother, for I do regard him as that. So through him I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. Now that you know that, now that you know everything Peter has told you about the difficulties of this life and about suffering and about the trials and about God's glory and about the God of all grace, now that you know all that, he says, stand firm on it because this world, this life, and your enemy, your adversary, Satan, is going to try to divide you from God. And he's going to do it through circumstances. And he's going to do it by trying to undermine your confidence and your faith in God. So stand firm in this faith. Verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon, chosen with you, sends greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, I won't go into much detail about it because I did in the introduction but there is a 
tradition that says that Peter was in Rome. There are even some interpreters who say that he said he was in Babylon to try to throw off the enemies of Christianity because if he said he was in Rome, they would have tried to seek him out or kill him or wreck the church there. But there's still no evidence that at this point Peter was in Rome. Some people have said that when he writes, she who is in Babylon, that he's speaking of his wife because we know that he was married. And so he's saying, uh, my wife, who's in Babylon right now, says hi. (laughs) Except that it says, chosen together with you, which implies that he's actually talking about the church. He's talking about the church in Babylon, which implies that Peter was in Babylon. So at face value, just reading it and not reading anything into it, I would conclude that Peter was in Babylon as he was writing this, visiting the church in Babylon, and that is who he's referring to, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. But they send greetings. They say, hello, as does my son Mark. This also gives credibility to the theory, and I don't think it's a theory, I think it's pretty solid, the idea that the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel, that Mark wrote it under the tutelage of Peter. He's clearly with Peter. Uh, Mark, who writes the shortest of the four Gospels, also says more about Peter's failure than the other three. And so there is a great deal of evidence that Peter was teaching Mark, who was writing what we call Mark's Gospel. So then greet one another with a kiss of love. Some of your translations will say with a holy kiss, Peace be to all who are in Christ. Uh, Last concept, holy kiss. Uh, The first time that I was at Main Street, people I did not know, men, walked up and kissed me right on the cheek. Just planted a kiss on me. And it took me back at first, but then I realized that they were doing what the Bible says to do to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, kissing male to male as a greeting was a very Mideast thing to do. It was a cultural thing. He's saying, do it as a holy kiss. Do it in a Christian way. But it was something that was pretty commonly done. I remember Elder Ward many years ago saying that it's a shame that the homosexual agenda in the world has made us suspicious of the holy kiss because we should be able to show affection to one another without thinking oh this guy's coming on to me the bible says to greet each other with that kind of holy kiss so yes i do think it's a cultural thing and culturally we've moved away from it except that i have been in churches and i will be in one again soon in gladeville where the holy kiss is just something they practice And there's just nothing wrong with it. There's nothing questionable about it. In fact, these days when men greet me with a holy kiss, I actually appreciate it because they're just trying to be firmly biblical. And that's the end of 1 Peter. So next week we will do the introduction to 2 Peter. We'll talk about some of the controversies that surround 2 Peter. 2 Peter, more so than just about any other book in the New Testament, went through a a tremendous amount of debate 
and questioning before it was added to the canon. So we'll talk about some of that background, and we'll talk about the, the fact that there are plenty of evidences within it that Peter did write it, but probably via a different emanuensis, which is why the language is a little different, which is why the, the tone is a little different, but it's still Peter. And then Peter's going to get into all of this eschatological stuff, which we here at GCA are comfortable with. We're not afraid of that stuff. But then a big section of Second Peter reads very much like Jude. So we're also going to work the book of Jude into our study of Second Peter so that we can see the parallel ideas and the very fact that Jude and Peter parallel each other and that Jude was accepted pretty early in the church gives credibility to Second Peter. So we'll get into all of that next week. And then we'll start yet another book of the New Testament. And if we include Jude in it, we've just about preached the whole New Testament. So that's pretty good. Any questions? Anything? Any comments? All right. Well, good enough. Then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.